This is Cleantech Talk, Cleantechnica's podcast series interviewing cleantech leaders from around the world. This episode is being sponsored by Pono Home. Hello, cleantech enthusiasts. My name is Scott Cooney, and my company has done energy and water efficiency retrofits for more than 13,000 homes and small businesses, saving our customers more than $3 million a year on their electric and water bills, while also reducing more than 11 million pounds of carbon pollution per year. Would you like to start offering this type of service in your community and do it for a living, make money? You can. Check out homeefficiency.com for more info. We do flat fee consulting to help you get started with our model, training you, giving the inventory, tools, software, and support you'll need. No royalties, no hidden fees, no sneaky add-ons. You can just get started. Ready to work with your hands and make a difference every day? Do it. Go to homeefficiency.com. Welcome to Clean Tech Talk. I'm your host, Michael Bernard. Um, doing my first solo hosting without Zach Shahan, um, listening in the background and contributing his pithy and useful comments. With me today is A.R. Siders, uh, Juris Doctorate and PhD at the University of Delaware Disaster Research Center. Uh, I met Siders through um, a managed, research, managed retreat effort that I'm doing, um, and we got in touch with her because she's the preeminent U.S. researcher on managed retreat in the face of climate uh, change, a huge adaptation thing. Welcome, Siders. Hi, thanks for having me on and uh, for that very flattering introduction. <laughs> so, um, yeah, Siders, when we first spoke, we, you know, we talked about a few things, but why don't you kind of give just the, the 30 second or minute long intro to your research and your, the, the things that you've been focused on and manage retreat in the United States. I mean, you can probably talk for an hour and a half just on that subject, but just, you know, set the ground. Yeah. Uh, asking academics to give brief summaries is always dangerous. So I study climate change adaptation. So how communities are thinking about dealing with the effects of climate change. In particular, I'm interested in coastal communities or communities living on the water, on rivers and coasts, who are dealing with things like sea level rise, floods and hurricanes. And I became very interested in managed retreat or strategic retreat or planned relocation. People use all different kinds of words. But what it boils down to is communities and homeowners who are moving away from the water, away from the risks. So rather than trying to put in walls or elevate their home, they have decided this place is just too risky to be protected and we're going to relocate to higher ground somewhere safer. Um, I became interested in this after Hurricane Sandy. I was working in New York City and heard a lot of conversations about how we should build back and not as many conversations about should we build back and where should we build back. So that became uh, the focus eventually of my PhD and now my research thinking about when do we decide that a certain place doesn't make sense to be protected that instead we can be safer by moving somewhere else, both for the people who are moving and for the land and the nature that's left behind. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting. I mean, uh, I, I came to know you because of the work I'm doing in Canada, working with Brent Doberstein, who um, has got a, a, another PhD at the University of Waterloo with uh, a similar academic research focus on managed retreat in Canada. Um, I'm also working with uh, Patrick Saunders-Hastings of Jevity, who's um, you know, leading the engagement, and he's a PhD in public health. And, you know, our overlapping interests are very similar to yours um, and, and what we're doing is as you're as you're aware was 
the, the National Resources Canada had asked us to look globally for good practices for what we were then calling managed retreat. Um, and so I, I think the first thing I want to pull apart is, you know, we're, we're, we had this really interesting discussion at the beginning of our engagement about managed retreat. Um, and we'll talk about managed versus planned retreat and the language stuff, because I know we're both interested in that subject, and I think other people <laughs> would be as well. Um, but, you know, you're focused on coastal retreat. When, when we first started this, Patrick and Brent and I spent a bunch of time just saying, well, what do we care about in terms of increasing risks in the Canadian context? And, you know, planned retreat um, was originally almost entirely about coastal sea level rise. But um, our, our efforts and looking at our, our literature and what we're seeing, we're seeing um, riverine flooding retreat. We're seeing retreat in the face of melting permafrost in northern Canada, which is also a, a, an Alaskan concern. Um, and we're also starting to see wildfire retreat questions. You know, so the challenges, the impacts of climate change and the increase in risks are spreading from the coastlines um, where we're seeing erosion-oriented risks and um, increased um, sea level uh, you know, storm surge risk. Uh, and now it's spreading across multiple jurisdictions. I mean, are you seeing the same thing in the United States? That's really interesting that you describe it as moving from the coasts to rivers in Canada, because in the United States, I think we've seen somewhat of the reverse. So in the early 1990s, uh, there were a lot of federal focus on relocation away from rivers, particularly in the Midwest. There were some very huge Midwest Mississippi river floods in the early 90s, and whole towns relocated. Uh, the U.S. federal buyout program really got its legs and got going and expanded during the 90s because of this riverine flooding focus. And it's only more recently that we've seen these buyouts and this conversation shift to coastal communities and to sea level rise. But we do see a similar expansion towards thinking about permafrost, thinking about wildfire. So I do think you're right that it's expanding in the type of risks that are being addressed with managed retreat. But I imagine that every country will have its own starting point, right, historically, which, which risk historically drove the conversation. Yeah, for us, one of the things that, um, you know, one of the things that happened in Canada was, for better or for worse, we had, um, a, you know, if we think about the um, the framework that Brent uh, Doberstein and Canadian academics are using, uh, the PARA framework for adaptation, which is protect, mm -hmm. accommodate, retreat, avoid. Um, we had a um, massive flooding in the Toronto area on, you know, the Humber River and the Don River, which caused quite substantial devastation. And about 1950s, we saw in our most, um, one of our longest settled um, uh, urban areas, we relocated everybody in the 50s. And then the rest of Canada, for the most part, looked at that and applied avoid a lot more because we're more sparsely populated. We have a, we're a younger country in many ways, um, in different ways than the United States is. And so we had a, a, a lower history of getting into floodplains. But we also had a, um, there were two other factors, I think, which play into that. The first is we are seeing a shift in precipitation patterns due to climate change, which are making the risks for certain areas higher than they were before. You know, so we're seeing you know, more intense cloudburst type of precipitation, which is causing riverine flooding beyond what we saw before. And in the United States and Canada's 
eastern side of the, the continent, we're seeing um, you know increasing precipitation throughout the entire year, which is raising all the water levels substantially. So any flooding incident just gets worse because there's a lot more water in the system. Yeah, and I think you raise a really great point there that uh, often gets overlooked that the risks, the hazards we're facing are really shaped by both where are we developing and how much development is there and also how much rain and where is the rain falling or you know, where is the flood coming from, that both those are, are interacting. And it's intrig- intriguing that you point out that Canada is using avoid quite a lot because in the para framework, the United States traditionally has done much more on the protect and accommodate, uh, very little retreat, although some of it, uh, and most retreat that happens doesn't get talked about and is kind of hidden behind. And then also has really struggled with avoidance. Uh, Planners and, and hazard scholars in the U.S. have known for decades that avoidance is really important for minimizing risk, but the U.S. has really struggled to put that into practice. Uh, and so to this day, that's still an important research question. How do we get more avoidance in place? Because we're still building and in some places building faster in flood zones than we are outside of the flood zones. So uh, avoidance is going to become really important, especially if people don't want to retreat in the future. (laughs) We're going to have to up our avoidance game. Yeah, one of the differences, so uh, I've looked at um, sociological studies of differences between societies globally, um, in part because I did a lot of work with um, uh, outsourcing and offshoring of technology um, efforts. And so I set up and ran a lot of programs, and one of the key things I had to do was help Canadians and Americans be able to talk to people in India and actually communicate across cultural barriers. Um, you know, similarly, I, I lived in Sao Paulo uh, for a, um, a year and was working there across North uh, across Latin America. And I lived in Singapore for a couple of years, dealing into China and Japan and Australia. So I have this interesting perspective on how Canada and the United States are remarkably similar and yet also remarkably different. Um, you know, one of the observations we tend to think there's a, a, a parameter called distance to power, the power distance index, which is how much you respect the person you purportedly report to or purportedly has a position of authority. Mm-hmm. Um, the United States is very flat. The United States has treats everybody as a collaborator and nobody as the boss. It's, Mm. you know, that's the standard model. Canada is very close to that culturally, but we're still not there. We still have more respect for authority. The other way though, is that there's the individualist versus communitarian perspective. Um, You know, China was very successful in dealing with COVID because everybody just did what the government said because it was the right thing to do for everybody. It's a much more communalist society. Uh, Brazil, despite how badly the current president is doing, is also a much more communalist society, much less individualist. United States is very individualist. Canada's less individualist. We're kind of somewhere in the middle. And that plays into this managed retreat. Um, you know, the right of an person to do whatever they want on their own property and to build wherever whatever they can buy you know wherever they want to is very much ingrained in the american psyche and it's less so in canada you know so it's it's that's a long-winded way of saying psychologically the united states has a bigger problem than many other parts of the world (laughs) thoughts on that Uh, that's an interesting way to think about it um 
I haven't come across it in that those framed in that particular way. But uh, one way I've seen that maybe play out in the U.S. is that people are people who support major retreat very much want major retreat to happen on their terms. They're very not happy with things being imposed from top down. So I suppose in that way, I. I think that is definitely the case in the United States, right? We talk a lot about getting grassroots support, about community-based organizations, about um, co-development of knowledge, co-production of knowledge, and really collaborating on these adaptation strategies as opposed to having a technocrat come in and say, here's the right answer, here we go, (laughs) right? This is what's happening. Um, And in some ways that's important, especially with a type of adaptation like managed retreat, right, where it's going to affect people's lives in a very personal way. And you do want to make people feel that they're empowered, that they're making decisions. And frankly, the United States uh, as a government doesn't have a great history of having top-down imposed relocation strategies. So we need to avoid you know, the historic injustices and mistakes that have been made with that top-down strategy. Uh, but it does raise a number of complications and make it far more difficult if you're trying to get buy-in from everybody who's involved. Um, when people have different timelines that they're thinking on, all have their own vested interests, um, and you know what one person wants may not be best for the community. So it also can put government officials in a really difficult position when they're supposed to do what's best for the community and for the future, but doing that might mean they have to anger some you know, constituents today. That can be really difficult. Yeah, certainly the one of the threads that I, I'd like to pull on with that is the discussion we've had in the past about that, you know, one of the most successful ways to do it is a sacrifice for the common good. That that still work, you know, I'm you know it's a, a continuum of individualism, but the United States, you know, even I think one of our discussions, even you know, people who are in uh, the Republican demographic were strongly motivated by the thought that they were doing something for the good of the community. And we see that in Canada we see, um, and other places, but it, you know, do you want to talk a bit about that aspect? Cause it, it counters my, my, you know, weak thesis. Interesting. The, <laughs> The sacrifice for the greater good plays out a number of ways in managed retreat in the U.S. Uh, that are important. One is that in the United States, most retreat that has happened happens through this buyout program. So the federal government offers to purchase homes. The homes homeowners, if they accept this offer, move somewhere else. The home is demolished and the land is em- left as empty space. And this idea of the land will become empty space has been shown to be really important for homeowners making their decision. Uh, a number of homeowners feel very strongly that if they are going to give up their home, if they're going to make the sacrifice, then they want to make sure that it's for the greater good. That the government isn't going to turn around and put a new high rise in or put new houses in or put new people at risk. They want to make sure that they're making the sacrifice to do something that will help the community at large. Um, it's still an open area for research how much this influences people. If we started developing more messaging around, hey, if you sell your home and it turns into a floodplain that will not only protect you because you've moved, but also everyone else around you because we've been able to make a floodplain and keep them all safer. It's not clear how much of a role that plays, but it does seem to to play a role there. Um, although, I don't know, I think one of the challenges of managed retreat is you can almost always find counterexamples, right? So we can find examples where people very much wanted to sacrifice and, and help and they're part, they feel like this is a big part of the community. And then we have other examples of people, you know, 
don't care that staying in a place is bad for the community and it's expensive for everyone else and that it's causing harms, right? Or they don't care that <laughs> this is causing problems. So it's hard, I think, to put a finger on a particular pulse there. And I know that, you know, the anthropologist in our department would very much push back against the idea of an American culture or an American sense of community. And so <laughs> I think that's also true, right? That, that it will be very different depending on what part of the country you're in or what type of community yes. or, you know, what person you're talking about. Um, so right. I do think that, that self-sacrifice is important. Um, it also plays out in, in some of the environmental justice conversations that I've been having. Uh, there's a concern that some of the relocation might be creating a sacrifice, like we're sacrificing particular neighborhoods or particular groups of people in order to, for the greater good, right? Your community needs to move so that the entire city can be protected. Well, is the community that has to move, you know, I'm putting air quotes around has to, but has to move, uh, is that a community who has historically been asked to sort of give up for the greater good, right, that has been historically burdened so that others can, can have benefits. Uh, it, it raises a lot of concerns about the, the inequality we also see in U.S. housing and U.S. Uh, land use. And so um, Manager Retreat can really bring out some of those issues about is it really self-sacrifice or is it being sacrificed by someone else? Yeah, we have, there's multiple threads to pull on with that one. Um, you know, one of them, I'll just take the example of New York in the 1940s and 1950s um, when Jane Jacobs, great adversary, whose name escapes me because I'm bad with names, you know, drove through the expressways to enable people in cars to drive in from the bedroom communities in New Jersey and the boroughs into mm -hmm. Manhattan. Um, and the expressways went explicitly through um, poor neighborhoods and neighborhoods with people of color in them and displaced a whole bunch of people for the advantage of white people in the suburbs. Mm -hmm. And there's that history of uh, transformation being at the expense of lower socioeconomic classes and especially people of color and for the benefit of well-off white people um, to be to be transparent on that. And we saw that, we've seen that in Canada as well. I mean, you know, this just pivoting slightly to the language question. Yeah, the managed retreat language is the common academic language. We've chosen after a whole bunch of discussion to go with planned retreat, you know, because managed retreat, both words have negative connotations. Managed implies top down, retreat involves giving up and running away. Um, planned retreat, at least you participate in planning. <laughs> um, but we, our, our advisor group didn't want to give up on the idea that it was, we actually are giving up on this space and moving away from it. You know, they didn't want to sugarcoat that. And this is a, a work in progress. Um, but <clears throat> to the point of this discussion, we also had challenges with, challenges with relocation. Mm -hmm. A lot of the discussion around relocation was relocation of First Nations and Aboriginal tribal uh, groups from their traditional lands to reserves elsewhere, um, or from places that we'd already displaced them to, to someplace else because there were minerals to be exploited where they were. Um, so all the language around this is so fraught. Um, would you like to talk about that a bit? The language is incredibly fraught and as you say, I'm, I'm not convinced there's a, uh, a one right answer 
because <laughs> uh, yeah, retreat does have this defeat connotation. And I think, I think about it, uh, I, I like to try to spin that on its head and say, all right, in military terms, retreat isn't defeat. You don't retreat just when you've lost the battle. It can also be a strategic move, right? You can have a tactical strategic retreat where you recognize that things aren't going so well and you regroup on higher ground and consider a new direction. And sometimes that feels that feels like a very apt metaphor for what we're doing. We're saying we've built out, you know, we've spread out in some areas that maybe weren't a good idea <laughs> or they were a good idea at the time, but now climate change has made them not a good idea. And what we need to do is reconsolidate on higher ground and reconsider how we are going to move forward in a new direction. Uh, I, I quote it all the time. It's one of my favorite quotes on retreat is uh, U.S. Marine Corps General Smith uh, led a very famous retreat in the Korean War, and he says, retreat, hell, we're just advancing in a new direction. And it's so, oorah. <laughs> but I love it because it's true. It's not we're losing, right, or we've lost. It's we're shifting our direction. We're, we're going in a new direction. And it places the emphasis on something that's a bit more optimistic because retreat shouldn't just be about we're fleeing from the water. It should be we're reimagining how we live with the water or how we interact with the water, right? That Or, or hazard of your choice, you know, or uh, I don't know, area of your choice. But I work with floods and coasts, so with the water. Yeah. Uh, and... And so I, I like retreat as a metaphor, although I realize, recognize it is still problematic, but I, I like this idea of, you know, how can we think about the optimistic side of it as well as the, the moving away side. And with the management, managed plans, strategic retreat, um, I'm fans of all of them. Uh, <laughs> I think the, the important distinction is between the retreat that will happen no matter what. People will retreat. They will move. They will leave eventually. Their homes will be flooded and inundated, right? They'll have too many problems, too many storms. They'll be demolished over and over again, and people will move. The question is, will they do that with support or without it? And if it's going to occur with support, then it's going to require some level of strategy, planning, and management. And it probably will require all three. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and we can use any term we want to suggest that organized, coordinated support effort. Uh, but I think it's important to recognize that, that that's what we mean when we talk about the difference between managed retreat and just people moving is yeah. this coordinated plan, strategized, you know, <laughs> whatever other adjectives we'd like to use in that space there. Um, sometimes people, you know, in relocation, uh, resettlement in the U.S., also a very problematic term. Relocation is a problem. Even renewal can be very difficult because there's, you know, urban renewal has a, a very uh, difficult history as well. And all these words have such loaded connotation because people moving is a very emotional and difficult thing to do. Even in the best of circumstances, it can be very emotional uh, and, and very difficult. So doing it in, you know, the aftermath or in preparation for a disaster <laughs> when you maybe don't want to is, of course, going to be even more charged. Um, so I, I'm a fan of using language that meets people where they are. So whatever a community decides that they want to call this, I'm, I'm for. <laughs> You know, if we want to describe this as the resettlement, we can. If we want to describe this as this is the, you know, community movement, sure, go for it. Um, but I, I stick to manage retreat just because I think it's a, I don't know, a known term that has some 
some specificity. There's also been debates about relocation. Like, should we call this relocation? In the U.S., there's very little emphasis on the relocation part. Mm-hmm. Uh, homeowners are often, like, their homes are purchased and they move, but there's no, there's no government assistance or there's very little government assistance in the movement. Uh, and this varies. Some locations provide quite a bit of assistance in finding new housing and moving people somewhere else, and others, none. Here's your check. Good luck. But is that really a relocation or is it just a removal? Yes. Uh, and maybe that's a good reason to call it relocation is because we want more emphasis on relocation. We don't want this to be just about not living here. We want it to also be about living here and putting in new housing. And yeah, that goes back to somewhat of what you're talking about, the avoidance. Like we want to avoid building in the floodplains and we want to retreat from the floodplains we've already developed in. But the other side of that coin is finding safe places to develop, you know, having the targeted development somewhere else to push people towards, to have that new direction. So it's not just a retreat from something, but it's also a movement towards something else. Uh, and that's, that's an area where at least I think the U.S. is trying to go, but is still figuring out how to do that. Uh, yeah. yeah. Certainly for us, we, to, your, to lean into something you said, we, we're, uh, I'm looking forward to be able to ship you the final product just so you can have it. But one, we have a plain language uh, um, section which is mostly for municipal leaders and practitioners in the communities and leaders in the communities. Mm-hmm. Um, and our, you know, we have a bunch of good practices that are just try to be in really language that is accessible to them. And you know, one of our, our communication good practices is choose your terminology. Mm-hmm. Planned retreat can be referred to as among other options, planned re- relocation or proactive retreat. Decide with your trusted advisors what the right language is for your community. Mm-hmm. Because to your point, uh, anything is good as long as it's, but it's very specific to the unique circumstances. You know, yeah, and, and it may depend on the way that they are thinking about doing retreat too. You know, are, are they planning a whole community relocating together, you know, a true relocation to a new site, or is it, you know, a buyout? And it really is just retreat and people moving from a place. Uh, yeah, so I, I think you're, you're right that offering people, here's a range of options and whatever resonates with your particular situation and your particular goals. I don't think we talk enough about the goals of managed retreat as well. Like obviously it's a goal to get people out of the floodplain, but there are other goals, right? Do you want your whole community to remain together or do you not care? Uh, You know, some communities don't. Uh, Do you, you know, want to make sure that the land is, goes back to nature, right? Is it a floodplain or restored wetland or do you want community parks or, you know, resources? Like those are all goals of retreat that we don't, we don't talk about. And so those pieces could also play into what language you want to use to try to evoke that vision of why are we doing this? What is the end result? Yeah, certainly for us, we, we put it in, you know, put all of the retreat in a strong theme for us is we have to put it in context of adaptation planning mm-hmm. and the phases of adaptation planning, um, which, you know, spends a lot of time, you know, starting with understanding the climate risks and impacts and then assessing all the vulnerability and then applying the para framework, which includes all these different choices to figure out which subset in which order are the best ones, and then implementing and monitoring, adjusting, and going around the circle again. You know, often, you know, the, the piecemeal retreat that your federal program in the states does, it's just the federal government to an individual homeowner, and it loses the opportunity for that community cycle of adaptation. You know, I, I'll give you 
a couple of examples out of Canada which are interesting. One is Tuktoyuktuk, um, which has a great name. It's in Northwest Territories. It's a small, uh, dominantly indigenous uh, community. It was established in the 1920s. Um, it's on a spit of land that juts out into the sea. And nobody knew that the horrible storms would come pounding and were eating the land away at a tremendous rate. So it's not a sea level rise retreat, but since the 60s, we've been aware that the land is going away often one to two meters a year. And we've been trying to relocate the community. And so we've had an ongoing planned relocation of a community since the 60s, and it's still not done. It's even this year during COVID, they actually relocated four houses on sleds over uh, snow and ice to their new foundations that were poured last year. Um, but nobody was sure if it was going to happen or not with the um, the lockdown for COVID-19, which is a subject I think we want to return to because there's some really interesting intersectional stuff emerging about that. And so that's just a case where something that's been plan in the planning and assessment stage for decades is still underway. And the houses that were removed, if we hadn't been able to move them this year, at least a couple of them would have been washed away um, and dropped into the sea mm -hmm. if, we, if we hadn't done it. So this is how hard it is, even in a place where we've got this entire community relocation model that's been studied and assessed for decades to get it right and get it right quickly enough. Um, and the piecemeal approach, we, we don't, but, you know, one of the key things that the United States has that Canada doesn't is you have a federal program for relocation. As you say, it came out of the um, riverine flooding and now it's applied for coastal stuff, I think is the, the thematic pathway that I heard you assert earlier. Um, but we don't have that. It's all piecemeal. Um, you know, program springs up. In um, the Ottawa, our, our national capital area, our equivalent of Washington area, um, it's on a river, the Ottawa River, and on the other side of the river is a different province, a different you know, U.S. state, uh, Ontario and Quebec. And flooding over the past three years has been heavy in both sides, in the Gatineau region and of Quebec and the Ottawa region of, of Ontario. But it's the same river and it's the same flooding problem. Um, the Quebec government, however, has put in place buyouts of homes in the affected areas with, you know, specific offers to specific homes and a prevention of rebuild, you know, uh, at market rates of $250,000 per house. And they're going to take care of that. On the, on the Ontario side, the Ontario government isn't doing that at all. So there's no buyouts for, you know, so they look across the river at a property which is being bought out and there's no buyout available for them. So we, we have a weird disparity between Canada and the United States about federal funding and federal programs. But the federal program in the United States has negative implications of a different type, things that have to be solved for. So I'll talk about the Surrey example because I think you'll find that interesting. You know, there, I know we talked a bit about it, but um, took, to, took that duration of retreat and the disparity of communities, I think, or uh, experiences in retreat, I think are two threads that you've dealt with in the past as well. Yeah, do you care to lean into either of those? Yeah, the, um, you know, the Tuk Tuk example sounds 
It reminds me a lot of the relocation occurring in Newtok in Alaska and the Alaska native villages that have have known for decades that they, well, at least since the early 90s, that they probably will need to relocate. Their coastal erosion is, is extremely severe and the communities have actually defined a new word for it. They call it ushtek, uh, and it's catastrophic land loss. So just you know, meters of land disappearing into the ocean as a result of sea level rise and coastal erosion rates. And even though they've known this is going to happen, we know the relocation needs to happen, the community's on board, and it's still so incredibly difficult to make it happen that they've only finally got funding and are uh, starting, you know, the actual relocation now. And I think that timing piece you mentioned is really important because a lot of communities in the U.S. will say, well, we don't need to relocate now. And it's true. You might not not need to relocate now. You might not even need to relocate by 2050. But if what we know from experience is that it can take 30 years to get this process going, then, uh, well, that might make sense to start thinking about it sometime soon, you know, and that you might want time to try to make this work and make it right. And to the inequality piece, it's really telling that in the U.S., who gets offers for relocation is a very problematic question. Um, did some research at Catherine Mock at University of Miami, led a study that came out last fall where we looked at where all the buyouts in the U.S. have occurred through this federal program. And the newspaper headlines came out and there were two ways that they interpreted our research. So half of them said, buyouts are targeting rich white people. That's terrible. And the other half said, buyouts are targeting low-income minorities. And that's terrible. And I keep thinking to myself, who could you say buyouts are targeting and people wouldn't be angry, <laughs> right? What's, what's, the, what's the middle ground there uh, where people would be happy about this? But it is a really difficult question about is relocating people you know, a benefit that we should be prioritizing for communities who have been at risk for all these historically unjust reasons? Or is it, you know, is relocation a harmful thing that is being imposed on communities and we should avoid imposing it on these historically burdened communities? Uh, and it's, we don't have a good answer for that in the U.S. now. Uh, and if you do in Canada, you know, let us know because your neighbors to the South could really use, <laughs> use that advice. Um, but where these resources go, where they come from, how they get allocated is incredibly difficult because we do have this federal program in the U.S. for buyouts, but it's very specific. It's for buying out homes, so not renters, but homes, homes that are owned, right, and owner-occupied primarily. Uh, and it's for individual home-on-home, -home, like homeowner-to-government interaction, not these sort of larger communities. And they have to be in response to federal disasters. So Ushtek is not a federally recognized disaster. And so if there's no presidentially declared disaster, then there's no federal funding for relocation for that. And so that causes all kinds of problems about you know, waiting for a presidentially declared disaster in order to, to enable this. Uh, so even with this federal pot of money, and I think you know, FEMA would probably try to make it very clear that they provide funding, but they don't run the program. So we still get all of these state by state and locality by locality differences in terms of how they take that money and then use it. So where do they offer buyouts? How do they approach the homeowners? How much uh, support do they give when they're relocating? Uh, can be very different experiences. Um, you know, thinking about the Ottawa, Quebec 
difference uh, thinking in the US, an example would be New Jersey, New York City after Hurricane Sandy. Both of them thinking about buyouts and approach it in completely different ways with different results for their the people who are, who are experiencing these buyouts. And there's I don't know, all kinds of debate too over whether a centralized program would be good because on the one hand it would give people someone to turn to and maybe it would make these programs more strategic and more fair across states and across communities. On the other hand, uh, if you put in a federal program uh, in a country the size of the United States, you're necessarily going to lose some local specificity, right? Some flexibility for local communities to do what makes sense for them. And so you wouldn't want to, you'd want to strike a really difficult balance of trying to provide federal support and recognition, but then also providing flexibility for communities to deal with their specific situations and their specific goals. I think we will have to move in some direction that provides more of this kind of support for relocation, because I think we're going to see a lot more need for it in the future. But maintaining that balance of support with flexibility is going to be really difficult for federal systems like the U.S. and Canada. Yeah, it's it's incredibly challenging. One of our recommendations, you know, we, we our, our dominant focus was on guidance and good practices for municipalities. Mm. Uh, we also have a provincial equivalent of the U.S. state level guidance and a, a limited amount of uh, federal guidance as well for national leaders. And one of ours was, you know, we, we didn't want to create, we weren't asked to define the attributes of a good federal program, mm. um, but we do need a good federal program. So establish it, fund it, establish departments around it, you know, things like that, things that a, a government needs to do. Um, you know, and so potentially we'll get it, the opportunity to engage in helping define that and come back to you and say, let's talk about the U.S. FEMA example and talk about the good things and the bad things about it. They're both. We don't have a, uh, we don't even have that. Uh, but there is one thing that is interesting about this, the, the disaster concept. Um, certainly, our experience in Canada is that retreat has only happened so far after recurrent disasters. Very little of it is proactively looking, looking at future risk levels and saying this community will see recurrent disasters. But in that longer term planning cycle, one of the things we do in, when we talk about a community planning for adaptation for climate change in that five uh, phase cycle, that recurrent cycle, is take advantage of disasters when they occur. So create plans um, for relocation, knowing that when you have a disaster, a flooding or a wildfire, you have the opportunity to pull them out and take advantage of them during that period when rapid transformation is more possible and federal and provincial funding is more likely to be available. If you have something in your back pocket, that helps a lot. Absolutely. I think disasters are you know, often described as, as good policy windows and they do, at least in the U.S., right, they can open up lots, they can open up new funding sources, they can open up uh, access to new resources and they can really motivate people, right? People are most aware of the risks they're facing after when your living room is flooded, you don't have to question whether or not you live in a flood zone, right? There's, there's no debate about how at risk this place is. Uh, and people forget risks very quickly. We don't have a good, we don't have a long-term memory for hazards. Uh, and so acting when people are most aware and most willing to engage can be really important. And 
with a comment there that I really liked that you stressed that these policy windows need to be part of larger strategies and strategies that are put in place long before the disaster. Uh, and also, which I'm sure is something you're recommending, is that those strategies need to be very participatory before the disasters, right? Right after a disaster is not the right time to say, okay, let's get everyone in the town hall and think through very <laughs> carefully, right, how we're going to move forward. That's a really difficult time to do that. So that participation, those conversations often need to happen long before the actual disaster. Um, also, that so no one is making, right, um, decisions when they're emotionally overwhelmed, you know, trying trying to make big decisions about where you're going to live, what your community is going to look like while also dealing with the aftermath of disaster. It's just, it's no one's best moment. <laughs> so uh, the more we can stress long-term planning in advance of those will be really beneficial. Yeah, no, we, we, when we talk about this, we, we talk about finding all the rights stakeholders and titles and rights holders. Um, we have just as our initial list of people to consider when you're drawing up your communication list and the people who need to participate and the groups who need to participate, we have 12 different categories of groups mm -hmm. to consider that you have to bring together and understand their different perspectives. <clears throat> and even within those groups, it's different. Um, let's pull back to Surrey a bit, because Surrey is an interesting example of a community doing the right things. Thank you for listening to Clean Tech Talk. Join us next time to get your electric fix. We are looking for more clean tech leaders. If you would like to sponsor our podcast, drop us a note.